something exciting we have today is uh, we're going to look at the book of Philemon. And this was actually a cool week of sermon preparation for me because it was a studying book that I'm not, I wasn't too familiar with. And I don't know if uh, many of you are familiar with this book either, but it's, the, uh, it's one of the shortest books in the Bible, and it's a letter written from Paul to somebody named Philemon. It's about 25 verses long, and we're going to read the entire book today. So if you look in your bulletins, uh, you can follow along with me. <clears throat> Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and, Tim- and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very hearts. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, the past two months or so, we've been talking about our vision. We've been talking about the kind of church that we want to be and We've set this picture out of building bridges. And specifically, there are three kinds of bridges that we want to build. Bridges to belong to the spiritual community. Bridges to grow and grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. But also bridges to partner uh, with other people, with other believers, with other ministries and other churches. And today we're going to start looking at this final bridge that we want to build, a bridge to partner. Now, if you think about ministry, most of the most most of the fruitful ministries always have these good, solid partnerships. Most dysfunctional ministries have very poor dysfunctional partnerships, and you know we can understand the idea of partnerships on so many different levels. Uh, on a micro level, all of you here today, if you are a believer, if you consider this uh, your church and you're a part of this church, you are actually partners together with one another in gospel ministry. In our church, we have a process uh, of formalizing that, which we call membership, 
which uh, maybe is not the best name to convey what it actually means because membership makes you think about joining some kind of club. Uh, but what what that process is, is in our church is basically saying that no longer are you coming to church from a, a consumer perspective of what you can receive, but now you want to view yourself as a partner with other believers in this church, and you want to work together uh, for the sake of the gospel. On a, on a macro level, uh, we know something very obvious, that one church can't do it all. One church can't reach New York. One church can't reach the U.S. One church can't even reach the world. So we need to form partnerships uh, with with a bunch of other churches in order to do good ministry and so that the gospel can go forth into the world. Now, in the Bible, there is this Greek word called koinonas. And <clears throat> if you're familiar with the word fellowship in Greek, uh, koinonia, you, you hear the same, the same root there. And uh, that word actually has a wide range of meanings. And in some places, it can be translated as fellowship. Uh, but and fellowship basically means we we share in this one thing. We're partaking together in a shared or in a common thing. And so if you're a believer and you have fellowship with other believers, what that basically means is that you are sharing in a common faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, some of us, we might be used to hearing the word fellowship simply in a context of maybe like a, a social event or a social gathering, which of course that, that that's included. But there, there's actually a wider semantic range of the meaning of what fellowship means. And this word uh, that's sometimes translated as fellowship uh, can also be translated as partnership, as partnership. And you see even in, in our passage, uh, you, you see the word partner. Uh, it, it comes from that word, from that word fellowship. It's, it's a partnership. And therefore, together as believers, what binds us together is not simply a common faith, but what binds us together is a common mission. And therefore, fellowship, part of the understanding, a complete understanding of what that means is that together we share in a common vision or a common mission for what God is calling us to do with our lives as a body, as a community in this world. Now, one of the great benefits I think you experience in partnerships with other believers is it, it tends to create a special bond. You know, eventually, if you have this uh, consumeristic approach to church and it's like you're just kind of attending every Sunday just to see what you get out of it, I, I think eventually you're going to find that that feels very empty. Uh, you want something more at some point. You want to feel connected with the wider community. And I think one of the best ways to feel connected with the wider community is to see yourself now as a partner with other believers in the wider community, to join in serving for the sake of the gospel. That's why when people, and, and not just from this church, but even people from other churches, they'll often come to me and they'll say, yeah, you know, I, I like the church, I like the sermons and so forth, uh, but I, I just don't feel connected to uh, the people there. And usually what I'll say is, well, are you involved in some, are you serving in some way? Are you connected to the mission in some way of that particular church? And oftentimes the answer is no. And so if you're here today and if you feel like that too, and if you feel like you want to get a little bit more connected, then uh, my, my advice is see yourself more as a partner. See yourself as a partner with everybody else who is here and, and serve and serve. And you're going to feel the special bond, I think, with other people. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few weeks, but today here's what I want to do. I want to think about the bigger picture uh, with respect to partnerships because uh, we are a church in New York City. Uh, our desire is to reach people in New York, but we can't do it alone. One church can't even do it alone. I know we are a, uh, one of the smaller churches in New York, but even one of the bigger churches cannot do it alone. Uh, we all have to do our part, and what we have to think about is what exactly is our part in kingdom work. Uh, and that's why we actually need a lot of churches. We need a lot of ministries in New York. Uh, every church is as unique as the people who make up that church. Uh, 
Uh, I've said this in the past that um, you know a lot of times that pe- churches want to make themselves feel very distinct uh, with like branding and say you know we're very different from other churches because we do X Y and Z. But I think in my opinion at the end of the day, every church is pretty much trying to do the same thing in terms of making disciples. And uh, the best way to think about what makes a church distinct is not how it's branded. It's not the logo. Ultimately, it's the people that make up the church, right? Uh, we're a very distinct church from other churches, not because we're trying to do something that's radically different from other churches, but all of you come together. All of you are unique. The combination of all of you are unique, and therefore the work that we can do is unique, and we have to figure out what that work is and be faithful to that task. Now, we're not just concerned about New York, though, right? We're concerned about the gospel going into the world, into other countries, into other nations that haven't been reached with the gospel, into places like Asia or Africa or South America or even the Middle East. And so partnerships are important there as well because there are churches, there are missionaries, there are people out there who are trying to do that. And it's very important to form these partnerships if we want the gospel to really uh, go forth into the world. There's a lot more I think I could say on that, but here's what I want to do. I, I want to actually jump into this passage because I, t- I think it teaches us a lot of important things. And uh, there, there is so much in here that it says, as I was meditating upon it, uh, I was like, I wish I could say this, but it doesn't quite fit. I wish I could say that, but it doesn't quite fit. Uh, but let's look at this passage. Now, as I said before, I don't know if you've ever read the book of Philemon because it's not one of those common books uh, that you uh, you read or that you hear from. Uh, I wouldn't even be surprised if maybe some of you have never even heard of this book. But it's a, essentially, it's a short letter written by the Apostle Paul to somebody named Philemon, and he is addressing a very specific matter. I wouldn't say it's a private letter. I think it's a public letter, but it's addressing a very personal subject. Philemon, he owned a bondservant, which is kind of, in the ancient world, it's like an indentured servant by the name of Onesimus. And although we know that uh, we know something about Onesimus, for example, we know that he ran away from Philemon. We don't exactly know the reason why he ran away. Some people guess that maybe Onesimus uh, caused some kind of damage, or maybe Onesimus stole something. We don't really know, but we know that he ran away from Philemon. And somehow, along the course of the way, Onesimus. Uh, as he's a fugitive, as he's running away, he somehow runs into the Apostle Paul. Some people think maybe they shared a prison cell together. Who knows? Paul uh, comes into contact with Onesimus, and through that relationship, Onesimus eventually becomes a believer. He becomes a Christian. And so what Paul is doing is he is writing to Philemon about Onesimus, and he is basically asking Philemon to welcome him back, to forgive him uh, of whatever debts that he may owe, And that's essentially what this short letter is about. When I first introduced this idea or this picture or this vision of bridges back in January, we looked at a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul talks about a ministry of reconciliation. And that was a very important passage to look at because if if you look around, uh, what we said is the world is very divided. Very, very divided. Uh, There's People are divided by politics. People are divided by race. People are divided by class. The world is very broken. There's a lot of broken relationships everywhere. There's broken families and broken marriages and broken friendships and broken work relationships. And there's even, of course, broken churches. But since the gospel is a message of reconciliation, as Paul says in that passage, it gives us the power and the resources to be able to pursue reconciliation, not to be a cause or a source of division, but to actually be uh, a resource for bridging, for bringing together, for bringing unity. 
And so if 2 Corinthians 5 is kind of like Paul's uh, theology and statement of reconciliation, maybe uh, a little bit in the abstract, I think what Philemon is and what Philemon does is it's a ground-level example of how Paul understands what he writes in 2 Corinthians 5. And what I want to do today uh, is I want to look at this issue at hand, but or I don't want to look at this issue at hand specifically, but I want to actually kind of understand the framework in which how Paul thinks in which he can address this issue. And I think what emerges is the importance of partnerships. So there's three things I want to point out. First, uh, the nature of partnerships. Second, the potential of partnerships. And finally, the, the engine behind fruitful partnerships. So first, uh, the nature of partnerships. Now, partnerships can generally go in one of two ways, right? They can either be a source of great encouragement, or they can be a source of great heartbreak and great discouragement. If you look in verse 7, we see that Philemon, he is actually a great a source of great encouragement to the Apostle Paul. Paul says this, how he derives so much comfort and joy because of Philemon's love. And the reason for that is because Philemon, he refreshed the hearts of the saints, which means he refreshed the hearts of other believers. And uh, I think one of the reasons why Paul was so encouraged by Philemon, uh, not only because Paul was like a, maybe a spiritual father to Philemon and Philemon came to Christ through Paul, uh, but Philemon was also a very generous person. Uh, we can assume that he was uh, probably affluent. He had some money because, one, he had, right, he had bond servants. He had people serving him. But, two, he also owned a house. And uh, if you look at who the letter is addressed to, uh, it's the church that meets in his house. So he must have had some money in order to house uh, the church. But his generosity and his hospitality and his ability to do all of these things and partner in gospel ministry was a great encouragement to Paul. And I think what we get out of that is sometimes we underestimate how our desire to partner in the gospel can really serve to encourage other people. I'm always encouraged when uh, many people here uh, are serving to partner in the gospel and do different things. Uh, I'm always encouraged when uh, Allison and Alicia, they, they plan an outreach and relief bus. Uh, I was encouraged a couple of weeks ago when Rose and Jean planned a women's brunch. Uh, I'm encouraged when I hear these conversations talking about, you know, what can we do as a church to, to reach out to people in New York? And I find it encouraging because it's, it's saying, you know, God is moving in people's hearts. God is giving people the heart to, to reach others. And it, it is an encouragement to me when I hear those kinds of conversations because it means you and I, we are all together partners in the gospel. But it's also encouraging, I think, to hear people from other parts of the city, other parts of the world, share what God is doing in those places as well. Uh, isn't it encouraging when somebody comes and uh, from another country and says, you know, these are the things that we are seeing God doing in this country, in this place, and uh, these are the things that God is doing uh, in this church, and this is the kind of revival God is bringing to these people. And we hear that, and we are mutually encouraged by it. You see, these kinds of partnerships are important because they have a, a benefit of mutual encouragement. Uh, by the way, that, that's why I do encourage all of you, if you can, if you have the time, if you have the ability, to participate in these mission trips, one that's taking place in the summer. And it's not necessarily that we are going to go and we are going to bless people and do all of these amazing things. Uh, what oftentimes happens is we are the ones who receive the greatest blessing uh, because we get to see what God is doing in other parts of the world, and it has this ability to really energize our faith and encourage us. And so even for that purpose and that reason alone, I would encourage you to try to see uh, what God is doing and participate in these short-term mission trips so we can start these partnerships not only with other churches in the city as we go together, 
but to have these partnerships with what people are doing all over the world. And we'll find that we're going to be greatly encouraged by that. Now, on the other hand, partnerships can also be discouraging, right? And I think we have to be realistic about that and sober about that. In verse 24, Paul mentions somebody, one of his fellow workers, Demas. And uh, maybe you don't know who Demas is, and I guess it's a little bit debatable, but if this is the same Demas that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 4, then this is somebody who used to be a fellow co-worker with Paul, but who eventually abandoned Paul uh, because what it says in 2 Timothy 4 is because he fell in love with the world, the present world. Uh, it's hard to know for sure what happened to him, but I think the implication is maybe he fell away uh, because of the pleasures of the world. And so some partnerships won't turn out for the best uh, for different reasons. Some partnerships will be a source of pain and discouragement. Now, I remember watching this video on uh, some missionary work that was taking place, I think, in Eastern Europe. And the video was narrating all the amazing things that God was doing. But what I appreciate about the video is it, it ended and the narrator was saying, you know, as much as there is a lot of encouragement, and uh, for every Timothy, meaning that for every uh, encouragement, for every conversion, for every person who loves Christ and wants to serve Christ, he says there are ten Demases. <laughs> there are ten Demases. Right? In other words, for every one encouragement, there could be ten stories of discouragement as well, of people who abandoned them, people who turned against them. And, you know, I was talking to a missionary friend of mine who said, you know, the hardest part about doing missions work is not necessarily uh, ministering to the people. The hardest part about uh, being a missionary is other missionaries. <laughs> and he, he's saying, you know, it's, sometimes it's so hard because sometimes they, they leave the field. Sometimes they turn against you. Sometimes they're just a great uh, source of discouragement. And so partnerships can have that effect as well. It can be a source of discouragement. And if any of you have served in this church for a long time, I'm sure along the way you've experienced that kind of discouragement as well. Nevertheless, even though it could be discouraging, partnerships are still crucial, uh, so important for the sake of ministry. Why? Right? Why? And I think this leads to our second point, the, the potential that partnerships have. You know, one of the potential benefits of partnerships is that it creates unity, okay? It creates unity. Now, I know most people here will probably say, oh, unity, I like the idea of unity. But if you've ever tried to create unity or maintain a sense of unity on the ground level, you know that it's it can be very difficult to do, very difficult to navigate. Sometimes there are these personality differences or philosophical differences or just different conflicts that happen. And unity can actually be something that is difficult to achieve. Now, traditionally, it's been theologically liberal churches who have sought unity amongst uh, the churches. Uh, but that came at an expense of foundational biblical truths and doctrines. Uh, on the other hand, the lack of unity, I think, amongst churches in uh, different areas and in the world is probably the thing that potentially hinders the advance of the gospel or the mission of the church. Uh, I was talking to another missionary who some of you know, but I will not say his name just for because uh, I know these are recorded. Uh, but I was talking to him about why a certain country he uh, has not experienced revival for so many years. And he said, you know, I think that this country will never experience revival until all the believers there and all the churches there uh, work together, begin to work together and begin to seek unity because there's just so much division there's so much uh, of a territorial spirit of this is my turf don't invade my turf and he said that i think is the reason why there is not revival 
in this place. And I don't know if he's right, but when he said that, I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I couldn't stop thinking about how important it is for believers and churches to really seek unity and to work together for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean uh, benefit in terms of just sharing resources and financial resources and so forth, but benefit in terms of spiritual benefit, in terms of what the Holy Spirit is going to do in a certain place. If you look at what Paul is doing here in this letter, he is actually seeking unity through these two people, through Philemon and Onesimus, through reconciliation. And he's using his partnership with Philemon to bring that about. Look at what Paul says in verse 15. He says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Up until now, their relationship was defined by their roles. Their relationship was master, bondservant. Paul is now saying to Philemon, Onesimus is now more than just your servant, but he is now your brother in the Lord. And there is this little strange parenthetical statement in verse 11 where Paul says, you know, he was useless to you, but now he is useful to me and to you. And I don't know if you read that. You were thinking, what, what is that about? Well, Paul, he's just trying to be clever because the name Onesimus means useful. And basically he's telling Philemon, you might have thought that he was useless to you because he ran away from you. Maybe he did something to you. But he is now your spiritual brother and partner in the gospel, and therefore he is now useful to you. That means that in the Lord, there is no more division. There is no division of race, status, or gender. And it is essentially the application of what Paul says in Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Think about the significance of that verse for a moment. That the power in the gospel is really quite amazing because it can bring people of different races, different statuses, uh, different genders. It can bring people together. Now, Philemon and Onesimus, they occupy very different worlds and they occupy very different statuses in the world because Philemon, he is this affluent citizen uh, and Onesimus is this fugitive bondservant. And yet in Christ, what Paul is saying is that you are both the same in dignity and in status. You are both now brothers in Christ because you have both been adopted by Christ. And so when Paul says in verse 17, receive him as you would receive me, he's saying something very, uh, very important. Uh, that Greek word is the same one that we looked at in Romans 15 when we talked about hospitality and welcome. And Paul is saying, show hospitality to Onesimus, even though he might be someone different from you, even though he might be somebody who ran away from you, even though he might be someone who hurt you, receive him as you would receive me. That's, that's an application of the gospel. That's an application of the ministry of reconciliation, to bring people together, people of all different backgrounds, people of all different places in life, people of all different statuses, bring them together because now, Together in Christ, you are all partners in the gospel. Finally, and this is our last point, what is the, the engine then behind fruitful partnerships? And I think Paul hints at this in verse 18. You know, he, he says to Philemon, Philemon, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Okay? If he owes you anything, charge that to my account. 
think about what Paul is saying right there. Paul is saying if Onesimus owes you any kind of debt, if he owes you any kind of money, if there's something that he did that was wrong, if he broke something, if he cost you something, charge me. Don't charge Onesimus. And we think, why would Paul do that? Paul did it because he knows that that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for him upon the cross. You know, Philemon was supposedly a resident of the city of Colossae, and Colossians is a letter addressed to the church in that city. And uh, in Colossians chapter 2, uh, Paul says something very important about the cross and forgiveness. He says this, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And you look at the uh, connection that he makes between the idea of forgiveness and the idea of canceling of debt. Sometimes when we think about sin or sometimes when we think about offense, uh, sometimes we can think about it a little bit too abstractly. Uh, not abstract in terms of the sin that we commit, but abstract in terms of the effect that our sin or our offense has against others. And if you look in the Bible, sin uh, and forgiveness, when it talks about those things, it oftentimes talks about it in economic terms. Sin creates a debt, and that debt has to be paid. And forgiveness is essentially saying, I will pay that debt on your behalf. Let me try to illustrate the dynamics of how this might work. Imagine there is a husband and a wife. And during the course of their marriage, the wife is unfaithful to her husband. And she has uh, enormous regret for her unfaithfulness, and she asks the husband to forgive her. And the husband thinks about it and considers what it means to for actually forgive her. And he realizes that what that actually means is that he has to pay her debt. He has to be the one to absorb all the pain for what she did. Uh, he has to be the one to absorb the injustice of what she did. He has to be the one to absorb the, the sense of rejection, the sense of shame. He has to take all of that on. That's what forgiveness means. Conversely, that means that he can't seek to punish her because he's saying, I'm going to take that punishment. Uh, he can't seek to reject her by maybe giving her the silent treatment because he's saying, I'm going to take the rejection. Uh, he can't hold this over her saying, look what you did to me in the past and I want to continue uh, I want you to continue to hurt because of it, because he's saying forgiveness means I have to take the hurt. That's what forgiveness is. There's a debt that's created and somebody has to pay it. Either the person who did the sin and caused the offense or either the person who says they are going to forgive. And that is why forgiveness is oftentimes difficult. It's hard to say that, is it not? To say that I will absorb the pain that I will take the injustice, that I will take the shame and the rejection. That's something incredibly hard to do and to say. But you see, the gospel story, the story of the gospel is actually about that husband and wife because the husband in the Bible is Jesus Christ and the wife is you and I. That's what Jesus did when he dies upon the cross. He absorbs the cost, the debt of our sin when he dies upon the cross. And so therefore, when somebody hurts us, when somebody does something wrong to us, we might ask, why should we forgive that person? But I think that's the wrong question to ask if you're a believer. The question to ask is not, why should I believe that, uh, forgive that person? The question we should first ask is, why in the world would Jesus have forgiven us? Why did Jesus do it? Why did he pay our debt? 
by absorbing the cost of our sin upon the cross. Why did he experience the injustice? Why did he experience the pain? Why did he experience the shame and the rejection on our behalf? And if we ask that question first, we arrive at a mystery. And we say, I have no idea. Why would a holy God do something like that? It's like that line from the song, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And it asks this question, My God, why would you shed your blood so pure and undefiled to make a sinful one like me, your chosen precious child? And I don't know if there is an answer to that that's going to make sense to us. All the Bible says is because he loves us. I think his love is perhaps the greatest mystery of all. But here's the thing. If that love is indeed true, if indeed God has shown us that love in Jesus Christ, if indeed Jesus Christ took upon and absorbed all the pain when he died upon the cross, doesn't that just melt any kind of bitterness in our heart towards the person who offended us and hurt us? Shouldn't it do that? Shouldn't that truth give us some sense of, how can I not forgive somebody when I've been forgiven so much? How can I not do it? Look what Jesus did. Doesn't that give us a sense of, I am so rich because Jesus did that for me. I am so rich in him. How can I say that I have nothing to give and nothing to forgive? See, this is, this is ultimately the source of why we can forgive and how we can forgive. This is why even when partnerships go wrong and partnerships are dysfunctional, why when relationships are dysfunctional, why when, Phile- when Onesimus runs away from Philemon, this is why there's hope that even broken partnerships can be mended together and made better. We have been given this great ministry of reconciliation Jesus Christ has demonstrated upon the cross. He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And therefore, not only can we forgive one another, we can also pursue partnerships. And even when those partnerships go awry, we can still reconcile those partnerships. And when the world sees that and sees how rich we are in him, and how forgiving we can be because of him. That is a beautiful thing. And I think people want that. (laughs) I think people want to experience that. So let's be a people of bridges. Uh, Let's mend our broken relationships and our broken partnerships. Let's seek partnerships with others. Because it is all for the sake of of the gospel and the glory of our God. Let's pray together.